Our study this morning is in Acts 1 and 2. So let's take our Bibles and turn there. Acts 1 and 2. We did a series in the book of Acts a couple years ago, and we have uh, referred to this part of Scripture many times. Great text of Scripture and just so exciting when we look at it to see what the Lord is doing. I don't think we can ever study this text enough um, because it really shows us the potential of the church, not church as a building, not church as a congregation in one place, but the church as a whole, the body of Christ, what God can do in our midst and the powerful uh, promises and the powerful sufficiency uh, that he has in our lives. And it really, this, this text really shows a secret um, that is unparalleled. Uh, we see a power here that's, that's kind of unparalleled uh, throughout the rest of the New Testament or even throughout the church age. This is, a, this is a special text. And what's exciting about studying it is that um, the Holy Spirit really wants us to understand, I believe, and I think this is why he's led us to this text this morning, that he has far more planned for us than we understand or even that we acknowledge. And that what he's doing here in this text is really not unique. What he's doing in this text is not unusual. It is his expectation for the church. It is what he wants to be happening at all times. Now, as we look at these uh, couple of verses this morning, there are a couple of things that stand out just at the very outset. First of all, we need to remember that these were ordinary men and women just like us. And yet their faith and their yieldedness and their willingness to commit themselves to, to the work of the Lord was, was such that he really literally used them to transform the world. Second thing we need to understand is that this level of effectiveness, this level of spiritual impact on the world is desperately lacking this morning especially in the American church, because churches around the world, the church in other countries and other continents, really in many ways is thriving with the possible exception of Europe. But the church in America is stagnant and it is struggling. And, and this level of effectiveness is missing, even though we have tried every, forgive the phrase, every trick in the book to try to make it happen. And in trying all those different methods and all those different strategies, we have missed the purity of what God has called us to as the church of Jesus Christ. So, so the, the strategies and all the plans and all the, all the things that we've tried to do, the methods really are not just part of the problem, they are the problem. But this study this morning is not being about critical of that or about uh, coming down on it. What, what I'd like and what I believe the Lord wants us to see this morning is to have our hearts stirred like the people at Pentecost that heard this message. And to crave what we see in this text, that, that we will be used of God. I don't mean just a little bit. I don't mean a lot. I mean in ways that blow our mind, in ways that we can't imagine, in ways that we just go, what in the world is going on? Look at the Lord work. I, does anybody want that this morning? Does anybody want to see that happen? That we wouldn't just kind of go through the motions and do our thing and come to church and have a little bit of it. No, that God wants to explode what the church is doing. And again, this is not unusual. And I think we tend to view Acts as like, wow, look at Acts. That was amazing. That will never be repeated. 
I would respectfully disagree. God wants to repeat this again and again and again and again and again. He does. Why would he show us this and then have us live marginally? Why would he show us this and say, but my expectations for the church in 2014 are far less. His expectations are the same. And what we see is powerful. Look at it. Just three verses this morning. Start in Acts 1.14. These all with one mind, speaking of the apostles and those that were gathered, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now go down to chapter... Oh, let me, let me read 15.2. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons, who were together. Now go over to chapter 2 and verse 37. Pentecost has happened. The Spirit has come. Peter has preached this sermon. It's the end of the sermon in verse 36. Verse 37 says this. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It struck me this week that it was just 120 people. Not a big following, not what we would expect after Jesus had done three years of ministry that had radically changed people's lives, after he had taught doctrine that that just amazed everybody, after he had healed people, after he had raised people from the dead, after he had ministered to people who were hurting. After three years, it was just 120 people. The crowds less than two months before that had cried out Hosanna and had wept and had praised God and had said, thank you that you've brought the one who will be the king, who will be the Messiah, as they threw their coats and the palm branches on the ground less than 60 days before. And and now here, we're just left with 120 Very ordinary, very simple men and women whose hearts have been changed and who had decided that this Jesus was the one that they were going to completely give themselves to. But now he was gone. And they were still a little sad and still a little confused. And yet they were excited because he said, I'm going to send my spirit to you. So hang out in Jerusalem. Just wait because my spirit's coming and that's going to be great. And they have this sense of expectation and this sense of anticipation that God's going to use them in a very significant way. But every one of them, every one of the 120 had failed and abandoned Jesus within the last two months. They had either run away or denied Him or didn't believe or had no expectation of His victory, no sense of what was going to happen, no anticipation of the resurrection, or they doubted that it was real once they heard it had happened, or some kind of combination of all of that. Not one of them had been completely faithful and completely loyal. Not one. Not one of them was waiting expectantly at the tomb on the third day going, I'm ready, I don't know where everybody else is, but I am here because Jesus said He was going to rise again. Not one. And Peter, we know and have studied many times, failed the most spectacularly. 
repeated public denials after he bragged, I'm going to go to death with you. I'll go to the cross with you, Jesus. I'm going to be right there with you. Now, we know that, and, and it's important, and we've studied it before, but the reason I'm bringing it up again is because that context is important. Jesus' disciples were not really respected. The crowds didn't really respect them. The critics didn't really respect them. Even Jesus, several times, had said, what is wrong with you? Where is your faith? Why are you so, so full of doubt? Don't you understand who you're with? And even when they're with, with, him, uh, with him, they get it wrong. They, they have the wrong priorities, or they miss his teaching, or they're weak, or they're, they're, they're just kind of off on their own. Now, that's not to be critical. They had committed their lives completely to him. I don't know if I would have done that if that were them, because it was a difficult challenge. They took on a lot. But what we do need to understand is to see them realistically. Because if we know their faults, we know their failures, we know that they had not been faithful the way that they should have, what happens here in chapter 2 becomes even more amazing. A lot of times when we look at this passage, we talk about the coming of the Holy Spirit, or we debate the issue of of the languages that they spoke, or we look at Peter's message, or we really focus on that favorite passage in verses 42 to 47 about how the church was. But but I really, the, the Holy Spirit really had me see something with very fresh eyes this morning, and I hope it excites you as much as it did me. It's in chapter 2, verse 37. And I'm not really sure I've ever taken the time to, to really study it and apply it uh, like the Holy Spirit had me this week. And he raised some questions to me about my own analysis, my own personal commitment. Are you doing what I've called you to do? Uh, maybe you need to be a little more introspective. What about decisions you're making? Uh, and, and I think that's important. We need to ask ourselves those questions, right? Even though sometimes it's a little discouraging. Like, ooh, conviction. I don't like conviction. I'd rather be out of conviction. But the Holy Spirit uses conviction to say, where are you in this? Not a pity party, not trying to create insecurity, but an honest assessment about the effectiveness of our lives and the effectiveness of our church. So what really challenged me, look at verse 37, what really challenged me was seeing the reaction of the crowd at Pentecost as they looked at these 120 men and women and saw the change in them and saw their fresh witness for God, it says in the text that when the crowd heard this, talking about Peter's message, the gospel that he preaches throughout chapter 2, that when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of them, what shall we do? Now, don't glide past that when you read it, because those two reactions not only tell us about the hunger of the crowd for things that were spiritually logical and things that would bring spiritual refreshing in their lives, and that is still that still exists now. It's easy to get discouraged when we look at culture and to say, well, nobody cares anymore. Listen, there is a hunger for spiritual answers in our culture. We have to believe that because that will drive ministry. If we get too discouraged and say, culture's lost, we're just waiting at our time till the Lord returns. We have to recognize there is a spiritual hunger in this world for Jesus Christ. So they saw the hunger of that. What they also saw is that the people of God can have a ministry that seriously draws people to Christ. 
Now, I believe that is less true than it's ever been the church of Jesus Christ. But that's not a reason to fold up the tents. That's a reason to get busy. They know the purpose of being there as believers because Jesus said it. You're my ambassadors. You're my witnesses. You wait here. I'm going to give you power and you're going to go out and be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem where it's comfortable and not just in Judea, that's familiar, but in Samaria where your enemies are and in the uttermost parts of the earth where you guys have never gone and is unknown. This is what I'm calling you to do. You are to be my witnesses and you are to go out and make disciples by preaching the gospel. Now, if that's not really what's happening in 2014, then how do we reverse that trend? Or maybe the better question is, how do we as believers, how do we as a church become so effective and so much a representation of Jesus Christ that every person we run into says, I want to know what's going on. And I want to trust the one that you're trusting. Now you say, well, Paul, that's a cliche. And we've heard that before. And, and every person... This is the reality of Scripture. Acts 1 and Acts 2 is profitable for our teaching, correction, and training in righteousness. How many will say amen to that? So this is not some passage where we can go, ah, it doesn't apply to us. Let's go to Ephesians. I can study that. Or let's look at Romans. Or let's study Revelation. No, Acts 1 and Acts 2 applies to us. So it may seem like an idealistic question. Well, how can we have a life that's so effective that everybody we run into says, what is going on with you? And, and how do I know the confidence and hope that you have? But that's not idealistic. It's reality. And there is absolutely no reason to conclude that we are living and operating under a different system than they did in Acts 1 and 2. It is the same Lord, the same Spirit, the same Gospel, the same calling, the same commission. And the need of the world is exactly the same. In fact, I would suggest it's greater. And yet, there's an imminence to Christianity, isn't there? There's an impotence. There's an insular focus on self and we're trying to be cute and clever. And you know what? We've got to be honest. We are not seeing the reaction of Acts 2.37. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and they said to the apostles, what should we do? Now, there are three things that are happening here. Write some things down this morning. Let's interact with the text. There are three things that are happening that we want to see happen through our own lives and our own ministry. Number one, there was a profound spiritual awakening in the hearts of the people in the crowd. The text says they were pierced to the heart. The word in the Greek means they were emotionally agitated and emotionally agitated to the point that it pained them when they heard the gospel. It pained them to realize that they were spiritually misguided because they had not put their faith in Jesus Christ and that He alone is the Savior of mankind. And unlike the majority of our culture, they didn't reject that fact. They didn't scoff at the fact that they were in sin. They didn't uh, mock the fact that God loves us and God intervened to rescue us 
from the punishment of sin. Instead, their hearts were pricked. They said, we want to know the answer. So there was a spiritual awakening. Second, the people were convicted and they didn't run from it. People from all tribes and nations had come to Jerusalem. And yet when they heard the gospel, they didn't say, you know what, let us go back home and think about this and wrestle with this a little bit. And maybe we can write you and find out what it's about. No, they wanted to know right then. You see, true conviction doesn't postpone a response. When you are really under conviction, when the Holy Spirit convicts you, and He says, change that now, true conviction doesn't say, let me think about it. Let me take some time. Let me process it. I'm on a journey. I've got to figure it out. And let me wrestle with it. No, true conviction means you change now. That's how we know we're sensitive to the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit convicts, we act. So the people look at it. They say, we need this. What do we do now? What a contrast to the religious leaders who when Jesus spoke said, we don't want to listen to you. We want to kill you. And that leads to number three. Look at it. The people wanted to know how to experience change. This is not just curiosity. It's not just, wow, that's really something to think about. Let us, let us, let's take some time. Let's go to lunch. Let's figure out what this is about. They immediately said, how do we change? Status quo spiritually is never enough. If you haven't trusted Christ, status quo is not enough. You need to put your confidence in Him and be saved and be transformed. If you're a young believer, status quo is not enough. You need to grow and mature in your faith and study the Word and be in fellowship and be strengthened. If you're a believer 40 years like I am this summer, status quo is not enough. You need to deepen and develop and mature and have your faith go to a new level that it's never been before. God never wants us to be stagnant. And when this crowd hears the gospel, they say, we want change. And look at what Peter says. He says you need to repent. That means renouncing sin. That means not trusting in yourself for salvation. It means having faith in Christ to forgive you and cleanse you and secure your salvation. Listen, there is nothing passive. There is nothing soft about repentance. It is painful. And it is an attack on self to say, I am a sinner and I need to confess it. And Lord, you need to change my heart. Change cannot happen without repentance. If you are waiting for God to make you a different person, then you need to spend time repenting and clearing out your heart and saying, look at me, find any crevice in my heart that is not surrendered to you and change it. So the crowd says, what do we do? And people, Peter is honest. He says, you need to repent. That's what we need to do with people. We need to say, if you don't trust in Christ, you need to repent. If you are a believer and you are wandering away into sin, you need to repent. Let's stop dancing around the truth because that doesn't help people. Let's go right to it and say, here's what needs to happen. The world wants to reframe Jesus' message and say, he was about love and 
tolerance and he just wanted to hug everybody and just tell them it was okay. And there's a universalism creeping through Christianity that at the end, God's just going to accept everybody and you don't really need to do anything. That is not the message of the gospel. Jesus' first message was repent. Repent. Now, these three things happen. Let's go to the next section and try to bring this to a close. These three things happen. Thousands put their faith in Christ. The early church's birth, it's very significant. These 120 people are right in the center of it. So let's ask a question, because I don't know about you, but I get really excited when I read that. From chapter 2, verse 37 to chapter 2, verse 47, is just it, it just stirs you. It just makes you passionate. You go, wow, look at that. The church was saving people. It wasn't transfer growth. They were saving people every day. New people were being brought into the thing. People were being baptized. They were devoting themselves to prayer and teaching and breaking bread. They had a sense of awe. Everybody was together. It was all common. They had sincerity of heart. They were praising God. They had favor with the people. And God added numbers daily. How many want that? So we read that and we go, that is tremendous. That is awesome. Boy, I wish that would happen. Now here's the question, and let's not be quick to answer it. What prevents that from happening today? Now we can come up with all kinds of creative, logical explanations, both theological and practical, and I've heard them all my life. Well, that was a different time. And God had a different purpose The church had to be started, so God gave a special anointing. The Holy Spirit doesn't work this way anymore. It was specific. People are more skeptical now, and there's so many options, and there's technology. We just can't see this happen again. And you know what I say to that? Every one of those answers is incorrect. Those answers are a smokescreen because we try to explain this away because it's uncomfortable to us, it's uncomfortable to me that we're not seeing this happen. So we have to ask, what prevents this from happening? And the second question is, what prevents you and I from being a modern day part of the 120? What prevents us? Now this is where our reasons become very personal. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't work in my life that way. And I'm shy, and I, I, I don't know how to witness, and, and I don't know. I mean, God just doesn't seem to move in my life this way. And the problem with those answers are they're not acceptable because God has given us His Spirit. And it's the same Spirit that is in Acts 1. And it's the same Spirit that is in Acts 2. So we can't say, well, it's different. And God doesn't work this way. And, and, it, and it's a different culture. No, we have the same spirit, the same power, the same equipping, and the same command to go. So there must be something that is inhibiting us from seeing this happen. And we have far more than 120 people. In this room, we have more than 120 people. So imagine what would happen if we alone, just this church, exemplified this. Imagine what would happen if Harbor Rock Tabernacle became this 
effective for the Lord. Imagine if the American church this morning was saying, how can we be more effective? Let's stop playing games. Let's stop trying to be clever. And let's stop being so preoccupied with with creativity and trying to conform to our culture. And let's be Acts 2. We're not seeing results because we're not like this. And imagine if every believer just in Racine Imagine if every believer said, Lord, I want you to use me like that. God would explode the ministry. God would transform this town. God would transform this area. You say, well, that's pie in the sky. No, it is not. This is what God wants to do. So what needs to change? Let's bring it to the end. When we study this passage, trying to find a situation or a purpose that was unique to that time and not to us doesn't exist. These men and women were not unique. They didn't have special training. They didn't have a whole Bible in their hand. They didn't have extra revelation. They didn't have unprecedented power from the Spirit. They didn't even have overwhelming confidence. They were average. The situation was distinctive only in the fact that it was the first Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. But there were people of many nations and religions gathered in Jerusalem. And that's not any different than if you walk down on the streets of Chicago this morning, or you walk on the streets of L.A., or you walk on the streets of New York, or you walk on the streets of Racine. People from all nations, all religions are gathered together. There are multiple ethnicities, multiple beliefs, multiple languages. And we can't say, well, the crowd was more receptive to the gospel. Paul, come on now, that they were ready to receive it. Peter has to go back and explain prophecy and defend Christ and do an apologetic of who he was and explain that they needed to trust him. So the situation's the same, the people are the same, And the receptivity is the same. Now how, tell me, did they get such amazing results? How was their fruit out of 120 people that literally changes the world? I believe that's a key question that we need to ask and answer. Because there is no question this morning that the Holy Spirit can empower us and use us in the same way as He did then. So... Using the text, let's take a couple more minutes and let's challenge ourselves to follow his, their example by five simple distinctives. There are five simple distinctives that characterize them which are easy to do and they put us in a position for the Lord to give us a dynamic ministry. Okay, write them down. Number one, Acts one fourteen. They were completely committed to constantly seeking the Lord. They were completely committed to constantly seeking the Lord. It says, with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. What a sentence that is. What a need that is in every Christian church in the world. And yet, it is probably where we were lacking the most. We have designed ourselves to be a church that puts a priority on prayer, that prays fervently. We have not always done that. I have not always done that. We want to have a weekly prayer meeting. We want to get back to that where we are giving God that attention and calling on His name. Until we get there, we need to be faithful in prayer. 
And we need to do what we did this morning. We need to pray for each other like we prayed for Miranda, like we're going to pray for Barb at the end of the service. We need to be a church that calls in the name of the Lord. Why is that so important? Why was it the catalyst and power for ministry in Acts 1 and 2? See, the church was birthed out of a prayer meeting. Why? Because prayer puts us in a position of faith and dependence on the Lord, and that's exactly what he wants. Prayer gets our mind off ourselves and it asks the Lord to forgive us and change us and help us and lead us. You know, I don't think I've ever thought about it before until this week. But I wonder, in, when you look back at chapter 1 and verse 14 and beyond, how much time was spent in prayer in Acts 1 with the disciples just confessing their lack of faith when Jesus had been there. Never thought about it before. I've always seen, well, they were conveniently devoting themselves to prayer and they were preparing themselves for the Holy Spirit to come. But, but it hit me this week. You know what? They had a lot of cleaning up to do. They had a lot of confessing to do. Lord, we didn't believe. We weren't there at the tomb. And even some of us doubted when Jesus was standing in front of us saying, touch my hands. We were, we were even doubting them. And then we've been faithless. And when Jesus said, I'm going away, we kind of panicked. And the angel said, he's, he's sending somebody else. And we're like, what do we do? Lord, we need to confess that to you. We didn't see it. We didn't hear him. But Lord, now we're ready. I wonder how much of that prayer time was just preparation, cleansing and purifying and getting ready. Lord, you said you're going to send your spirit and we are ready for that. Second, Acts 2.4. They were full of the spirit. Don't get caught up now in the fact that they were speaking different languages and that there were little tongues of fire over their head. We can talk about that another time. That is not the most important thing. The most important thing is the Spirit had come and empowered them. Look at the phrase. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Imagine how different the church would be if that was true. If we could just get the first two things right, Devoted to prayer and filled with the Spirit. The focus and effectiveness of our ministry would be so profound. Now it's interesting that Jesus said to them, I'm going away and that's good. In fact, it's better for you, we'll preach about this one day, it's better for you that I'm leaving and sending the Spirit. And you go, wait a second. We're walking with Jesus every single day and he's right here with us and we have a problem. He's right there. How could it be better that he's leaving? And he says, it's better for you because instead of having me walk beside you, I'm going to indwell you. I'm going to fill you. And where you were scared and timid and powerless before, now when I fill you, you're going to have power. The Spirit is coming and He will bring power. They were filled with the Spirit. Third, chapter 2, verse 4 and 14, they openly and boldly shared the Gospel. Effective ministry must have this. We can put on programs and have services that are entertaining and we could have messages that are relevant. But none of it matters eternally as much as telling people, Jesus Christ loves you. He died for your sins. He rose again. And when you trust in Him, 
He will change you forever. There is nothing that is more important than saying that. And if we are called to be his witnesses and his ambassadors, then being a witness, like if we had just heard an accident when that car, that cop car was coming by, and we had heard, bam, we would have to go say, what happened? And there would be people standing around, and they would say, I was standing right here. That car pulled out in front of that other car, and it smashed it, and that person's hurt because this person wasn't paying attention. They were talking on their cell phone. That person would be a witness, and we would have to rely on them to tell us what happened. Well, guess what? We're the witnesses. We're the witnesses of the gospel. John says, that which you have seen and heard, now we declare to you. In other words, our lives have been changed. Your life's been changed by the Lord, right? So if your life's been changed by the Lord, then we are called not to be timid and not to say, well, I don't know what to say. Tell what has happened. The Spirit gave them utterance, verse 4 says. It's easy to say, well, that was extra help. No, it wasn't. It was them being full of the Spirit saying, here's what's happened to us. Our lives have been changed. We should be fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes. And now we are saved. We have to be willing to share the gospel. Number four. Acts 1.14. Acts 2.42. They were of one mind in their purpose and calling. Now that unity was produced, chapter 1, verse 14, in prayer. If you're ever in disagreement with somebody, pray with them. It's going to be the last thing you're going to want to do. But it's going to be the best thing you can do. Because when we lay ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, we got a problem here. We submit ourselves to you. How many know God will always solve that? I was thinking this week, they had 120 people. 120 Jewish people. That was 240 opinions. We can't think that everything was perfect, that they agreed on everything. In fact, when they're trying to decide who's going to become the next disciple, they have to cast lots and call on the Lord. They disagreed about things. They disagreed about the temperature of the room. They disagreed about how long the prayer meeting went. They disagreed about what they were going to eat. They disagreed about who was going to take the next meeting. The only solution they had was prayer And look at it. When they started praying, they were of one mind. And then chapter 242, the church expands and 3,000 people are added the first day. And look at what it says in chapter 2, verse 42. They were still of one mind. How could it be that 3,120 people were of the same mind? How could that be? Outside of the Spirit having control. Acts 2 is not Peter's moment. Acts 2 is the church's moment. The groundwork was laid by their prayer and by the power of the Spirit. And that leads to the fifth and final thing at the end of chapter 2. They bore fruit. Part of the reason our personal and collective ministry isn't more effective to the world is that Christians, myself included, aren't producing abundant fruit. 
We have pieces on the tree here and there, but because of self-centeredness and worldliness and pride and being consumed with the cares of life, the tree is not overflowing. The reason we love verses 42 to 47 is because they show us something we seldom see. It is spiritual fruit in abundance, not just with a few, but with everybody. You want to know how you know if you're living by the Spirit? You know you're living by the Spirit if your life is marked by what is humanly unnatural, but spiritually controlled by the Spirit of God. You know you're walking by the Spirit if there is fruit after fruit after fruit after fruit. Jesus said it brings glory to the Father, and it shows that we're disciples if we bear much fruit. Colossians 1 says, bear fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. What does that mean? We're done. It means the only real evidence we have that we are genuinely saved, the only real evidence that we have that we're putting off sin and we're in love with the Lord and we're walking by the Spirit, listen now, is that there is an abundance of spiritual fruit. The Bible says, by your fruit, you will know them. There's no substitute, there's no alternative. If there's not fruit, there's not life. And where there is life and we're grafted into Christ, John 14, there will be fruit. We can be like the church in Acts 1 and 2. This body, this assembly, and this building in Racine, Wisconsin can be like the church in Acts 1 and 2 if we will get serious about prayer and the Holy Spirit and testifying and our calling and bearing fruit. 120 people changed the world. We have more than that sitting right here this morning. And we can change this town by God's power and God's help if we will live the way that they lived. How many think that that can happen? We need God to stir us. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we need you to stir us this morning. Lord, we're skeptical in our hearts by nature. It's easy for us to look at this and say, well, this is unique. And it's a nice theory, but it can't really happen. Lord, this is not any different of a time than it was in Jerusalem at Pentecost. You're still our Savior. The Spirit is still our help. The Gospel hasn't changed. Culture hasn't changed. Maybe it's gotten worse, but it hasn't changed that much. And our calling is the same. Go into the world and preach the Gospel and make disciples. And Lord, I pray you'd stir my heart this morning. I pray you'd stir the heart of every person in this room that loves you. That we would not accept the status quo anymore. That we would not be passive, timid, fearful, hesitant. But that we would go forward and say, Lord, do this work in our midst. Even if nobody else is praying, and I'm going to pray it. Even if nobody else is going to go, I'm going to go.
Father, stir us. That tomorrow we would be different than we are today. That you would expand this ministry for your glory. That people in this town would get saved, Lord. That you would add daily to the evangelical church in this city. Every church that preaches your gospel this morning. Lord, that you would add people getting saved. That we would be bold about preaching the gospel. That we would not be hesitant because culture tells us to stop. Father, stir us this morning that we would be one of the 120 and more exponentially, Lord, that you would bring person after person that says, this is how I want to live. And Father, we will praise you and we will glorify you as we already have this morning that people are knowing you and trusting in you. Lord, help us now. We know the enemy is going to come and he's going to create doubt and he's going to try to preoccupy us with other things today. But Lord, may this word stay in our hearts. And may you burn that fire of passion for you and that fire of passion for the Spirit to fill us this morning and throughout the days ahead. Lord, help us, we pray. Bless us, guide us, lead us, give us wisdom. Lord, we anticipate already by faith what you're going to do. We thank you and we praise you and we love you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.